for all the men I've known before. <laughs> Nothing as salacious as your imagining. Just a long blast of pure nostalgia, if you feel up to it. Our lives today are so sanitized and orderly, with a big supermarket visit once a month for provisions and weekly online orders of fresh produce, that one has almost forgotten the myriad men that rang the doorbells of our childhood homes. Early morning, while I was still getting ready for school, the first visitor would be the bread man. He'd put his wide, shallow basket down at the front door and sit cross-legged behind it. Even before the door had opened, he'd have selected one of his beautiful white and brown dome-topped loaves, set it on a deeply serrated loaf-sized plank of wood and started to cut it into perfectly even slices with his long knife. The fresh smell of the bread would waft in through the open door and hastily snapping on my red school belt, I'd come running out, eager for my most favourite food in the whole world. If there is heaven on this earth, it is toast, it is toast, it is toast. Once a week, we were visited by the Eggman. He hunkered down on his haunches and switched on a light bulb he carried in his big basket and held each egg up against the light. Every so often, he'd reject an egg and not put it in mum's blue and white enamel egg basin. I was permitted to carry that big basin in, being warned to go carefully while mum paid the egg man. He was paid at every visit, unlike the bread man, who kept his own records and asked for his payment whenever he wanted it. Each followed their own preferred system and mum obliged them. The fruit man and vegetable seller were also regulars. I had no interest in the vegetable seller. But the fruit man was my friend. He always offered me a few grapes or a plum and asked me to check how sweet they were. Then he'd smack his head and say, Oh, I forgot, baby, you don't like sweet fruits. Don't tell your mummy my fruits are not good just because they are not sour, huh? And he'd have a happy laugh over his old joke while I'd chomp away at the fruit. It's true I've always preferred the sour fruits. And it's also true that all these men who came to our front door called me baby. And if I were to meet any of them today and they recognized me, they'd promptly call me baby again and loudly proclaim how big I'd grown. But enough on that. The pinman was another regular. What? No idea what a pinman is? The launderer, washerman, what do you call him? No washing machines in those days. We did most of our washing at home. But the bigger stuff, bed linen, towels, dad's heavy cotton trousers, those went to the pinman. The laundry was collected in a large wooden box with a woven cane front engagingly called the soiled linen box. It had a hinged lid on top and a stoppered escape hatch in front. I was deputed to empty its contents and sort the laundry. 
So many bed sheets, so many pillowcases, towels, pants, shirts, and mum would enter all the details in a notebook. The pinman would bundle everything up in one of those self-same sheets, ready to take back with him. Then he'd open up his bundle of last week's wash, and mum would tick everything off meticulously in her notebook. He was a prince amongst pinmen. No one has ever been able to replicate the perfectly starched and ironed symmetry of his dinner napkins. He came only once a week, but the ironing man came every evening except Sundays and ironed all the smaller and more delicate garments that weren't entrusted to the pinman's rigorous wash. He preferred to work on a table padded with old bed sheets and eschewed the much more practical iron board he was offered. The clothes would be dumped on the ironing table, smelling of the fresh air and sunlight they'd been dried in, and in only an hour, he'd convert the big pile into tidy folded stacks, one for each member of the family, and a number of shirts and dresses and my school uniforms lined up on hangers. We had some less regular visitors too, the tailor, for instance. He'd shake out a straw mat near the drawing room windows. and mum would give him a pile of old sheets to spread on it and trundle out her sewing machine he'd unpack his cloth satchel and a battered tin box full of sundry whatnots and in a few minutes he'd be ready to start but first because he lived far away in a village across the hogli and would have traveled a long time to come to us he was dispatched to the kitchen for tea and breakfast My school uniforms were always first in line for his attention. I'd have lost a button here or ripped a pocket there or all the hems needed opening out because I was growing too fast. Sometimes mum made me sit with him and practice my hemming and button stitching. His fingers flew while mine crawled. But he looked upon me indulgently and encouraged baby to stitch a more even line. Dad went to his own tailor, more fancy, had his own shop. But for the women of the house, this old tailor stitched all our clothes, copying the patterns in the J.C. Penney catalogs perfectly. He also repaired, altered, or added pretty buttons and lace collars. Sometimes, if there was a lot to do, he came two or three days in a row. But once he left, we wouldn't see him again for a few months. The gas cylinder man was nobody's favorite in particular. Or perhaps he was mum's, because she got anxious when there was a very long lag between order and delivery. So she was always relieved to see him. Our dog Timothy hated him. We always knew it was the gas man even before the doorbell rang, because Timmy would go to a distant corner of the front room and set up a veritable barrage of barking. An empty cylinder had fallen on him once, dropped by a panicked gas man, whom Timothy had shouted angrily at. And Timmy had broken a bone in his leg and had to wear a cast for six weeks. After that, he hated the gas man with a vengeance—not the individual, but the institution. Stayed far away from him, but barked non-stop until he left our premises. He was entitled, don't you think? So we told him to hush and all, but permitted him to air his discontent.
An occasional but exciting visitor to our home was the knife sharpener. He'd leave his apparatus downstairs and collect all the knives and scissors at the front door. I always peered through the balcony railings to watch him in action. A circular whetstone was connected to a big wheel, which he turned using a bicycle-like pedal. It made a sharp, whining sound and sparks flew as he maneuvered the blades delicately over the spinning stone, sharpening each one in just a few turns. His eyes stayed firmly on the blades as he worked, but he chatted casually with anyone who happened to be passing. It was mesmerizing. A semi-annual visitor was the Kabuliwala. He also was a good friend to me. He knew I loved walnuts and he'd always have a few cracked and ready for me while mum made her selection of nuts and dried fruits. Only after I read the Rabindranath story did I realize that Kabul was a place where his family probably still was and that he came this long distance to make a living. Knowing me, I must have asked about his family after that. But I don't recall what his answer was. It seems I had very poor EQ in those days, I regret to admit. There was also a Chinese pottery seller. He had the most fantastic stuff of any of the vendors who came to our door. China plates and vases, delicate tea and dinner sets, soup bowls with matching spoons, bearded fisherman figurines, chopsticks and a hundred things besides, all in delicate blue and white and painted with dragons, flamboyant flowers and Chinese figures. Mum bought stacks the first time, for our house and as gifts, but much less on future visits, for which she got roundly scolded by him. I remember giggling at that long-toothed man with his wispy beard and blue Mao suit berating my mum. The last in this series of visiting men I remember from my childhood was not a man at all. In fact, they were nuns, Mother Teresa's little sisters of the poor. Before I was born, my parents lived close to Shishubhavan and the nuns would visit every month collecting alms for the poor. My mom always had something for them. So when my parents moved to this new house far away, the nuns asked if they could come just once a year instead. And of course, mom said they could. The same two nuns came every year, an older one and a younger one. They sat together and drank tea or coffee and ate biscuits or some of mum's delicious Christmas cake. I was expected to be present and join in the hospitality. Imagine my surprise then, when years and years and years later, I was attending a funds collection drive in another city and saw again two Mother Teresa nuns. Again, one younger, one older. Instantly recognizable in their long-sleeved sari blouses and blue and white saris draped decorously over their heads. My eyes kept going back to them across the room, for they looked so familiar and reminded me of my childhood and my kind and generous mum. As the meeting ended, I went across to say hello, but the older one reached out and held my hand and asked me if I was from Calcutta. Can you believe that? It was the younger nun of my childhood, now become the older one in the pair, who insisted she recognized me at once as the spitting image of my mum. We held hands and laughed nostalgically together 
and everyone in the room had to know the story, of course. Wonders will never cease. So that's what took me on that circuitous journey of memory and all the men who travelled, in the words of the song, in and out our door. The supermarket and online delivery are no doubt a convenience nowadays, but much less rich in colour, variety and character. Don't you think? <laughs>